0: Our scripture reading this evening is from Romans chapter 8. Now we're going to focus on verse 34 of Romans 8. But I'd like to read with you that whole context of this climactic chapter of Romans 8. So we're going to start in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. This really uh, constitutes, we'll talk about that in a minute, constitutes the end of a significant section in Romans applying the salvation of Christ. And uh, just before this, we're reminded. For all who are in Christ, the condemnation that was upon them because of their disobedience, because of their breaking of the law, that condemnation is gone. And now the spirit has come to renew us, to reorder our lives. And so in verse 18, he says, I consider That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Beloved family of God in Christ, our world is disordered, even hostile. We've all heard the saying, whatever can go wrong, will. It's often referred to as Murphy's Law, and it's one of those things that makes life so interesting. See, God created the world to work well, so that all the parts would mesh together beautifully, so that our work would be not painful, but painless and joyful. But because of the disorder brought about by sin, instead of joyful, it's painful. Instead of fulfilling, it's frustrating. Our bodies work against us with injuries, illness, weakness, making it hard to serve. The people around us make life difficult, taking offense where none was meant, giving offense that's entirely unjustified. And we work against ourselves in this world. Constantly taking up the sin that we know will harm us and declining to do the good that we know God desires of us. This world is hard. And this year has certainly given us abundant evidence of the disorder of our world. The sudden spread of a new disease turned our society upside down, didn't it? Mainly because there was so little known about this new strain of virus, COVID-19. And the way in which it spread with what seemed to be such rapidity. Caused the nations of the world, in some measure, to panic. And then, of course, you have those in power who don't like to let a crisis go to waste. And they've, in some measure, made it worse. We could never have imagined, at the start of this year, that we would be where we are today. Having just begun, again, to be able to worship together. Knowing that there are countless multitudes in our nation who are out of work. Recognizing that personal interaction at the store, at the schools, at our church, have radically changed, perhaps, for the foreseeable future. It's enough to fill folks with fear for what tomorrow holds. But we don't fear because we know that God still reigns And that God rules over all of it. And that means that if we would face this disordered world without fear, then we must rely upon, we must seek help from, we must trust Him. However, that's a problem for men. Because in sin, men start out as God's enemies. In their sin, men dare not draw near to the true God. Because in their hearts they inherently know, we inherently know, that we're worthy of God's wrath. Well, Jesus came to fix that. He came to bring us peace so that we could approach God, so that we could have a relationship with Him, so that we could go through these unprecedented, unexpected times without fear. And His ascension in a very real sense, completes that work of peacemaking so that we could have confidence before God. And that's what verse 34 emphasizes for us in Romans 8. Here God's Word reminds us that we have confidence before God because of His Ascended Son. That's our theme. We have confidence before God because of His Ascended Son. And that confidence comprises according to this verse four aspects of what Jesus has done for us starting with how he died for our forgiveness now understand the context of this verse in the whole of Romans kids you know that Romans is where we got the outline for our Heidelberg catechism right so the guilt of our sin is explained in chapters 1 through 3 the Grace of Christ that saves us is explained in chapters, well, the end of 3 through 11. And then the gratitude by which we serve is chapters 12 through 16. So this is right smack in the middle of that section on our salvation. But it's really not because chapters 9 through 11 are kind of an excerpt that focus on God's election, particularly as it works itself out in Jews and Gentiles. So really this is the climax and the conclusion of the main section about the salvation we have in Christ. And this chapter, as I said, it it really talks about the application of that salvation to us. How Jesus' work frees us from the condemnation of the law. How the Spirit now frees us from fear and directs our life. How we look forward to the glory that is to come even as we live as the children of God. And how all of this happens, just before our text, how all of this happens according to God's eternal plan and purpose. That brings us to verses 31 and following, which is a section that really applies all of that by giving us confidence. The overall question at the start of verse 31 is what then shall we say to these things? If Jesus has done all that was said, if we stand assured of God's love, if the Holy Spirit lives within us, what then shall we say to these things? Our text comes right in the midst of that. One of the questions that aims to answer and apply that overarching question, what shall we say to these things? How shall we respond to all of this? Notice the question with which verse 34 begins. Who is he who condemns? Now the object of the condemnation is not explicitly stated, but grammatically the phrase stands parallel to the question before, which says that it's speaking of the elect, those who believe in the Lord, those whom God has chosen. Who shall condemn those whom God has chosen, those who have learned to trust in Christ? Who shall condemn Who shall say that they are unworthy? Who shall separate them from the love and the purpose of God? Who will call cursed those whom God has called blessed? Now the answer given is a bit indirect. In fact, it's not directly answered. But instead, we're simply shown that we have no need to be concerned about who may condemn. Because Christ is the one who died. Look at that in the context of verse 32. God loved us so much that He delivered up His own Son for us. Think about that. We deserve to die for the sins that we committed. We earned through our rebellion the ultimate judgment of God, and He didn't. He did absolutely everything man is commanded to do. He declined to do all of the things God forbade. He was the absolute perfect specimen of mankind. And God would have been entirely just and right to spare His Son and allow us to endure what we had earned. But He didn't. Instead, we read in verse 32, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us. For us, the rebels. For us to pay our debt. For us to purchase our forgiveness. Therefore now the apostle can ask. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall say that we are unworthy of a relationship with God? Who shall say that we're guilty of wrongdoing. Or unfit to enter God's presence. It is God who justifies. And he's the one who sent his son to pay the debt for our sin. He's the one who sent his son to restore us to himself. Praise the Lord. Because of Christ... Because of His death, there is now nothing to condemn us before God. Our sin is gone. Our debt has been paid. Do you believe that? If you would live in this disordered world... Without fear. If you would approach God where alone you can find true and certain help, then you must believe that absolutely to be true. And you must believe that it was true for you. That Jesus died, a gift of God's love, to free us from condemnation. You must believe it. That's the only way of salvation. But He didn't only die. For our forgiveness. He also lives for our triumph, which is the next thing we see here. Now, we may be tempted at times to overlook that empty tomb. The cross looms large, doesn't it? And well, it should. A greater display of love is impossible to imagine. And we don't often wear an open tomb on a necklace, do we? But maybe we should. Because that empty tomb is absolutely essential to the work of Christ to save us. You see, Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that His death was not defeat. And that He now lives for triumph. Death is normally the utmost demonstration of defeat, isn't it? But not so for Jesus. He willingly gave himself over to death for our sake, and he allowed himself to remain dead for three days until it was evident that it wasn't a trick, that it wasn't just a, a sleight of hand, that he was truly dead. And then he arose triumphant over the ancient enemy, a victory, a, a victor over the grave. The apostle addressed this victory a little later in Romans 8. First Paul mentions that The things that seem likely to separate us from God and His love. Verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. In fact, he says the world regards us as sheep ready for the slaughter. But the world is wrong because Christ was victorious for us. Christ was victorious over sin and Satan. He was victorious over the world and our old nature. He was even victorious over that ancient enemy death. He was triumphant, and because we're joined to Him by faith, we were triumphant. And therefore, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Folks, that must be our confession. Jesus didn't just die for us, He arose. He didn't merely suffer for us, He triumphed victorious on our behalf. And therefore, we have no need to fear any enemy. Our victory is as absolute and certain as that empty tomb. And now, our triumphant, victorious Savior is working to preserve us. Because as amazing as His resurrection was, that's not where it stopped. He also ascended, rising physically into heaven. And in that ascension, we see how the Son reigns. He rules for our protection. You see that phrase in verse 34? Who is even at the right hand of God. That's important, essential. The right hand of the one who rules is a place of influence, a place of power. In ancient cultures, the king put his most trusted advisor on his right side. Why? Because that was the place where he could discreetly give his wisdom to the king. That was the place where he, whom the king trusted, could make observations that might turn the course of treaties, wars. That was the place where you put the wisest, smartest, most intelligent and helpful individual you could find. And so it was a position of influence, of power. It was a person who could turn the king. We we inherited the idea of that in our phrase, right-hand man. Your right-hand man is the person you trust, your go-to guy. If you want to make sure that something's done right, or you want to make sure that you get the right answer, you go to your right-hand man, right? Well, at his ascension, Jesus didn't just go to heaven. That would have been glorious all by itself. But it would have been glorious for him. Instead, He went to heaven to God's right hand. And that's what makes it wonderful for us. Our God made, preserves, directs, controls everything. There is nothing beyond His control. He is the first who ordained everything that would happen, and He is the last, the one who ensures that everything comes to pass the way He intended Our God is absolutely and entirely sovereign. There is no king, no legislature, no alliance of men that even approaches His authority and power. And Jesus has access to all of it. Just before He ascended, He said to His disciples, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. And in His ascension to the Father's right hand, He took up that authority and began to wield it for our sake. That's essential to our comfort. Recall what we heard in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That means that no matter what we face, flood or famine, tornado or drought, strife at work, fighting at home, pandemic, economic devastation, none of it is greater than our God. In fact, He controls it all and all of it. Answering to His command, fulfilling His purpose, all of it, He does for the sake of the good of His people. Folks, there is no greater cause for confidence than this. No matter what you face, our God is greater. No matter what you endure, He's the one who has ordained it. And He's ordained it in such a way that it's for your good. And you know this, because the one who's wielding that power is the one who loved you enough to die for you. The one who won the victory on your behalf when He arose from the dead surely He won't stop short of meeting the rest of our needs but we we have to trust Him you have to trust Him to meet all of your needs explicitly, daily and then you need to give Him thanks for what He's done even when you don't know that it really is something you want to give thanks for Because we know that His wisdom and His goodness are far greater than ours. And know this, that even as He rules on our behalf to protect us, He also prays for us and with us. And that's the last thing we see in this verse, but it's an essential part of our comfort. Our confidence rests in the Son who prays for our provision. Look at the end of verse 34. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Kids, what's that word mean? Intercession. When you intercede for someone, you speak to someone else on behalf of that person. You seek their good. In other words, Jesus is in heaven not only ruling for us, but praying for us. And for what does He pray? For what does He ask our Heavenly Father? Well, He tells us in other passages of Scripture. For instance, in 1 John 2, It says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate, an intercessor. He's the one who goes to the Father and says, I paid for that sin. Impute to Him my righteousness. I paid for that transgression on the cross. Regard her through my holiness. He's praying for our forgiveness. John 17, we read another of Jesus' prayers, and He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in Us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. So He's praying for our unity, that we, despite our sins, despite our failures, despite our inherent differences, that we through faith in Him might be made one. So that we might be strengthened, but also so that the world, seeing how all of these diverse people with their sinfulness, with their brokenness, have been united to one, that they might believe that He's real and that He's true. He's praying for our unity. He's praying that we'll forgive one another. He's praying that we'll get involved in each other's lives. He'll pray. He's praying that we'll so care about one another that we'll take the time to get to know each other. And more than that, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may, may be with me where I am. He's praying that we will be preserved throughout this life. So that very soon we can see Him in all the fullness of His glory and we can know in ourselves the perfection that is His. He adds on, on that point in Hebrews chapter 7 where it says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's praying for our preservation. Asking the Father to remove that temptation from us that's too great for us to withstand. Asking the Father to encourage us when we're brought low by depression or by circumstances. Ensuring that that which stands against us is not greater than we can either endure or escape. So then we can approach God in our praying, brothers and sisters, with absolute assurance. Because Jesus has gone before us, ruling all things so as to bless us and praying to the Father for precisely what we need. And what confidence that should give us now. So as we pray together this evening, Let us do so remembering that we come in the confidence of the Ascended Son. He died for our forgiveness. He lives for our triumph. He reigns for our protection. And as we pray, He also prays for our perfect provision. Trust Him. Believe in Him. And give Him all the glory. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are so good and so great, and You have given us the perfect gift in giving us the gift of Your Son. We pray that You would enable us to trust in Him wholeheartedly. And we ask that You would hear our prayers this evening for His sake and alongside of His intercession. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, we're going to pray this evening for four different subjects. Before each prayer, we're going to sing briefly just to remind us what we're praying for. The first song is number 207. This is a a rendering of Psalm 104, if I recall correctly. Number 207, we're going to sing stanzas 1, 4, and 5.